This is Ideas at the House, a podcast that features live talks directly from the Sydney Opera House stages. I'm Edwina Throsby. Today's episode is another live recording from Antidote, our festival of ideas, action and change. Enjoy the show. Good morning, everybody. I'm Ramona Koval, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this event at the Antidote Festival, which, as you know, is a conversation with American writer and historian Deborah Lidstadt, who is perhaps best known as the woman who was sued by Holocaust denier David Irving and who won the case after a legal struggle that stretched over six years. Yes. Thank you. Professor Lipstadt is Dorot Professor of Modern Jewish History and Holocaust Studies at Emory University and the author of The Eichmann Trial and Denying the Holocaust, The Growing Assault on Truth and Memory. Her book on the experience of the Irving Trial is History on Trial, which has been republished as Denial, Holocaust History on Trial. And you may have seen the 2016 film based on that case. But today, she's here in Sydney with us talking about her new book, Anti-Semitism Here and Now, in which she draws our attention to the connections between uh, racist right-wing nationalism, left-wing tolerance of hostility to Jews, the rise of Islamist extremism, the politics of the Israel and Palestine conflict, anti-Semitism in American universities and the British Labour Party, and in all this manages to sound reasoned, fair, and even optimistic. And just before I start to talk to her more deeply about the book, talking of fairness, not many historians have had their practice of fairness and accuracy examined by a court over six years. And and reading your work, Deborah, um, fairness is the is the thing that jumps out. That you 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 really weigh both sides, all sides of an issue before you you come to a conclusion. Tell me about fairness. Well, I drive people crazy. You know, if you want to, uh, I'll sit down at a dinner party and people will take one side of an issue and I take the other. Or come to the next night, I'll take one the opposite side. If you want a lively party, invite me. Um, <laughs> But I think it's very important to speak seriously, especially when you're talking about anti-Semitism. If I'm going to charge someone with being an anti-Semite or say that what they did is anti-Semitic, it's a terrible charge. It's a terrible thing to say about someone, and it's, it shouldn't be thrown around loosely. Uh, and so I really want to look, and, and, and it's so easy to label someone and say, oh, they're just anti-Semites, you know, fat. You know, kind of thing. But um, I really want to be careful, and sometimes uh, people find that I'm too reserved in that, but I, I think it's the right way to go. And there are three jokes in the first 25 pages <laughs> of your book on anti-Semitism. Is it a laughing matter? No, no, but I think these are jokes that illustrate the absurdity of anti-Semitism. Um, I don't know how many have read the book, but I could tell you one. You could tell a joke, okay, why well, not? One joke, actually, and it's, it's, it has a special meaning for me because I 
heard it in 1972 on my first trip to the late unlamented Soviet Union. Um, and I was, I was walking on the street, it was I think Rosh Hashanah night, and I was walking on the street with a refusenik, and there was a KGB car following us quite openly, you know, to, that he should know every place he went he was being followed. And I asked him, how, how do you manage? And he said, well, we get used to it and we also use humor. So this intrigued me tremendously. And I said, so illustrate. And he told the following joke, that word went out in Moscow that a store was gonna get a shipment of shoes. And if you've ever been to the Soviet Union, you know that material goods, commercial goods were not in short supply, they were non-existent. So if a store was getting shoes, it didn't matter what style, it didn't matter what size, you went and you bought shoes and then you could change them, exchange them for so with someone else for jeans or whatever it was. So it's January, dead of winter, and people line up from the evening before. By the time it's time for the store to open, people are frozen solid and the line is very long. And they wait and they wait and finally the manager of the store comes out and says, we're not going to have enough shoes for everyone. Jews go home. So Jews go home at the beginning of the day. A few hours later he comes out, we're not going to have enough shoes for everyone. Non-party members go home, so the non-party members. We're not going to have enough shoes for everyone. Non-veterans go home. And so it goes through the day. The line is whittled down and whittled down. And finally he comes out at the end of the day and the only people waiting are high-ranking party members with lots of medals on their chest, veterans of the Great War. He says, we're not getting any shoes today. Everyone go home. So as two of these guys walk away, one says to the other, those Jews... They have all the luck. <laughs> I love it because it just, as do you, um, it just shows the absurdity of anti-Semitism. I could have written pages on the absurd, and I do, on the absurdity of anti-Semitism, and it's, it's encapsulated in that joke. So if... If it's absurd, um, you know, this anti-Semitism holding the idea of Jews with money and power, a wicked intelligence and, and conspiratorial control, um, why has it been such a persistent delusion? You know, anti-Semitism has rightly been called the oldest or the longest hatred. Robert Wistrich, of, uh, who used to teach at Hebrew University, who passed away tragically a few years ago, uh, termed that, and I think he was right. Uh, I find the roots of anti-Semitism or the template of anti-Semitism in the New Testament story of the death of Jesus and the way in which that story was used and interpreted over millennia by church leaders and then migrated out of the church. And the way the story goes, of course, is that the Jews, everybody in the story is Jewish except the Romans who actually kill him, but that's a fact. We're not dealing with facts. Um, <laughs> The Jews wanted Jesus killed because he wanted to chase the money changers out of the temple. Uh, the high priest and the uh, personnel of, at the temple had a vested interest in these money changers. They go to the Romans and they say, crucify, kill him. And the Romans don't want to do it. And they convince the Romans to do it. Uh, so, you know, think about it. You have the money, the money changers. The power to get Rome, the most powerful entity in the world at the time, you know, these, these, Judean, these Jews in Judea, to get him to, to get Rome to, to follow their request, even though they don't want to do it. 
and the, the cunning to, to convince them, the, the power and the cunning. Um, and there you have it. There you have the template. And then what's added in Christian anti-Semitism, and then it migrates out of Christianity to Karl Marx, who hated all religion, to uh, pseudoscience, to the Nazis, etc. cetera. Uh, but in the other element that, that Christian theology adds in the Middle Ages is the, de- the demonization of the Jew. The Jew is demon. And if you think about the demon in Christian theology, the demon, A, is the only one who can harm God. So it's not just that you dislike the Jew, but that the Jew is a threat. The Jew is evil and threatens your very being, because if they could harm God, they could harm you. And the devil or the demon uh, is, uh, disguises himself. So you don't know you've encountered the devil or the demon till the, they're gone. And so it is with the Jew. Um, so it doesn't matter whether it's poisoning of the wells and calling, causing bubonic plague, uh, blood libels, uh, Christian children, you know, etc. cetera, uh, that the Jew has, the Jew is hated, but the Jew is feared. It's, and that's the conspiracy theory. You know, mm. you're punching up. So if passionate hatred and conspiracies aren't rationally contained, then how does a, a cogently argued book work? It's very hard. It's very hard because on one hand, you don't want to give the charge the gravitas it doesn't deserve. Um, And that's true, by the way, of any prejudice. Think about the etymology of the word prejudice. Pre-judge. Don't confuse me with the facts. I've made up my mind. I see a black person, I know they're a certain kind. I see a gay person, I know they're a certain way, et cetera, et cetera. Um, If it weren't so dangerous, it would be absurd. So the question is, how do you, and that was very hard for me, I worked very hard on this, how do you demolish these absurd charges uh, without giving them more weight than they deserve? But they deserve the weight because of the damage they can do. Uh, They may be absurd, but they can, as we know all too well, they can cause great damage. Well, it's not good enough to ignore it then, because you learned that in the past, didn't you? And you didn't ignore David Irving's claims. No, I couldn't ignore David Irving's claims because if I had ignored them, as some people wanted me to do, um, for a variety of reasons, sometimes they were frightened, sometimes they thought he would just get publicity, but if I had ignored them, he would have won by default as UK and Australian libel law, I think is the same, um, because the burden of proof, the onus was on me to, to prove the truth of what I said, and not as it would be in the United States for him to prove the falsehood, um, he would have won by default. And had he won, he would have been able to say, you know, Deborah Lipstadt libeled me when she called me a Holocaust denier. Ipso facto, I am not a Holocaust denier. I, David Irving, am not. Therefore, my David Irving version of the Holocaust is correct. No gas chambers, no plan to kill the Jews. The Jews have made this up. Now, people said, well, if you settle, you know, no, everyone will know you just settled in order not to fight. It was very easy for them to say, I should go settle. I mean, I, not only could I, I, there were two groups I could never have looked in the eye, any survivor, any historian. So I just said, I'm going to fight. And thank God I was able to do it in a very uh, forceful manner. So um, who is your book for, um, your anti-Semitism book? It's not for people who will be talked out of their anti-Semitism, is it? First of all, it's not for the anti-Semite, because I think that's a useless task, you know. (laughs) They want to buy it, it's fine. They can buy multiple (laughs) copies. 
Um, they might burn it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care what they, as long as they pay for it, my publisher's here. It's a British, it's an Australian publisher, so you should, you know. Um, the book is for, um, it's not just for Jews. The book is designed, as, as I know some of you know, uh, is designed as a group of letters. A letter to a student a Jew, who's Jewish and a letter to a colleague who is very much not Jewish. And the, the interesting thing is these are two composite characters. I have, I've had lots of students write me, I said, oh, I'm so glad you based the book on that. It was like our <laughs> conversation. Let them think that, just they'll buy it for their family, it's fine. Um, <laughs> Or colleagues say, oh, you, that was our conversation. It, it, the, the characters really are composite. And in that sense, it's fic they're fictionalized characters. But what's interesting is, you know, usually you have uh, real characters, historical figures, and then in a movie, in a play, in a book, they speak, uh, you know, fiction. Here, the, it's fictional characters, but everything that comes out of their mouth are questions, comments, queries that I've had, conversations that I've had with colleagues, with students. So um, I wrote the book, uh, most of my books are accessible. I really want people to read them outside And they're the really well written. Thank you, thank gripping. you. I knew you were smart, but now I... <laughs> I've and very, it now. And very discerning as well, <laughs> you know. Um, but I wanted people who were confused by this, gobsmacked, just, you know, you'd say that here too, right? You do. For, you know, where's this coming from? What is this about? Uh, when is it anti-Semitism? What is anti-Semitism? I really thought of the students of, and not just students, but people who were just looking at this and, and can't believe that it's happening. Um, how could they better understand it and, and respond to it? And, and in, in America, it's happening around them. And um, we have uh, some video footage now. Mm -hmm. that you, do you want to tell us about what it is? Uh, this is video footage. Many of you may have seen it, but I think it, it bears re-watching. It's from uh, August of uh, two years ago, or three years ago, in Charlottesville. Yeah, yeah and that's the University of Virginia, a university founded by Thomas Jefferson. If you notice their dress, they look sort of like they walked out of, I don't know, a uh, TJ Maxx or whatever, uh, you know, uh, a catalog. Uh, they were told to dress nicely. Um, but it's not a small group. And contrary to what the President of the United St States said, it was not nice people. Nice yeah. people don't come to, to march at something like that. I mean, it's a, hot, it, uh, it's a very unsettling vi visual, and I remember watching it and then thinking, Jews will not replace us. What do they mean, Jews well, will not Well, they mean something us? quite specific. Um, on the far right, 
a political far right, the extremists, the white nationalists, white supremacists, and though we use the term white, it's, they're, anti, they're racists and anti-Semites you know, at the same time. Um, there is a theory called white replacement or Christian replacement theory. And the theory goes that there is a concerted effort to replace white Christians in Europe, in Australia and the United States with brown people, black people coming from Africa, coming from the Middle East, with Muslims. Now, says these white supremacists, um, these black people, these brown people, these Muslims, they're not capable of doing this on their own. Because remember, the, the racist punches down. The racist looks at the person of color or the Muslim and says, oh, those people, if those people move into our neighborhoods, they'll bring down the value of our homes. They send their kids to our schools, they'll dilute the quality of the schools. Uh, these people are not capable of that. Um, there's someone behind them. There's someone organizing that. Who is it? The Jew. Whether it's in the form of George Soros, whether it's in the form of liberal Jews, whatever it might be, they're uh, organizing this, they're directing this from behind. So Jews will not replace us. That's what it's about. If you think about it, in, in Pittsburgh, uh, the murderer as he was being brought down by the SWAT team, was yelling, you will not destroy the white race. At the people he had just, you know, in the, in the synagogue, he had just shot or wounded. Uh, you will not destroy the white race. That's what it's all about. So um, that's, that's what you're hearing. And blood and soil, of course, uh, Luton Boden is uh, a German, a Nazi term that Jews are not of our blood and not of our soul, soil. They are interlopers, they are uh, people who have come in, they don't belong here, they don't belong alive, and let's get rid of them. So they see Trump as very much being in their corner, don't they? Yes, yes. What they see in Trump, whether he is or not, and I, you know, I think that the, the jury is out on that, it's a little bit confusing. Um, no, no I, I say that seriously. Um, but what they see is a wink-wink, nod-nod. Um, that, for instance, during the campaign, uh, David Duke, the former head of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, <laughs> tweeted and said publicly, I support him. And when uh, then-candidate Trump was interviewed about that, he said, oh, I don't know very much about David Duke. I, don't, I, I can't comment on that. Well, it turns out that three or four years earlier, he had put an ad or he had said publicly, the Republican Party should not build its future on the backs of people like David Duke. So he knew enough to oppose David Duke, but suddenly now when he was a candidate, he didn't want to be critical. And there was such an outcry and such an outrage that he came back and he said, no, no, I don't, I don't want David Duke's support. Well, for the people that you saw marching there and many others like them, it was wink, wink, nod, nod. Oh, they forced him to say that, but we know that, that he supports us. They very much believe uh, in his support. If anything, the a murderer in Pittsburgh felt, uh, you know, Trump hadn't gone far enough. Some of them are angry at him because he let his daughter marry a Jew, become a Jew, he has Jewish grandchildren, etc. Um, you know, but I think the point is not whether someone like Trump or uh, Jeremy Corbyn are the two figures that I use as emblematic of right and left. The question is not whether they're anti-Semites or not. That's a, that's a debate that won't get you anywhere. 
Um, I don't know what's in their hearts. You know, that's between them and their cardiologist, you know? Um, but what I call, in the book, I call them enablers, anti-Semitic enablers. Uh, through their comments, through their actions, through their behaviors, um, they stir it up, they enable. So how do, how do you understand sort of Trump and the extreme right, um, and, and then Trump with Ivanka and Jared and Israel? I mean, how, how do we understand that? I think, that? you know, speaking personally about Trump, I think Trump admires Jews for all the qualities that are really inherently part of the anti-Semitic trope or template. You know, they're rich. They're, when he spoke about Jews, he spoke to a group of Jews at the Republican Jewish Coalition when he was running. He said, you know, uh, you won't support me because I don't need your money. And you just like to support people whom you can give money. And you're all renegotiators. I mean, he's famous in his business that you sign a contract with him. That's only step one. When you come to get your bill, he renegotiates what he owes you, et cetera. Um, and I think maybe he admires Jews because of that, all those qualities. Um, you know, but uh, there's a writer in, for the Atlantic magazine, Franklin Foyer, who said, you know, a philo-Semite is an anti-Semite who likes Jews. Um, <laughs> you know, it's... it's, it's the, the book of Proverbs says to the honeybee, Lomi duvshech velomi uksech, don't give me your, your honey and don't give me your sting, just leave me alone. You know, so it's, it's that, that kind of thing. Um, and what about the pro-Israel stance of some of these people? Well, the, he has done certain things. Every president and every presidential candidate said, oh, I believe Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, but once they got into office, they wouldn't do anything. I give him credit, I, even though I, I don't, you know, think it was a necessary thing, etc. He stood by his word. Um, but I, I think that in the long run, um, you know, talking about the loyalty of Jews when he has a, a Hanukkah party at the White House and he looks out at the, his supporters and he says, You're, I just met with your prime minister. Hello, we don't You're have American. a prime minister. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's not a good thing. It, but most importantly, people like this feel that they have his imprimatur. And, and you write about the need to call out anti-Semitism on, on the left as well. Absolutely. And why is it necessary to say so? I mean, why is it well, is resistance think, to... Yeah, I think, first of all, we've seen, if anything, uh, anti-Semitism is even more institutionalised on the left. Um, I use Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party. You can use members of the Congress in the United States. You can many many groups on the left, not all, and just like not everyone on the right. Um, but the way I see it, and I think I described it in the paper, in the article in the paper yesterday, um, that the, for the person on the progressive left, their view of prejudice is refracted through a prism, you know, and a prism bends light, um, that has a certain number of facets. Ethnicity, class, power. Power dependent. So if you, if you are white and they look at the Jew, even though these people that we just saw in the video don't see Jews as white, um, they see Jews as white and they see Jews as privileged, even though there are lots of Jews who are not privileged. And the fact is, if you, just as an aside, if you control for education, and you know, education being a very highly valued uh, aspect of, of Jewish life and Jewish culture, Jews are exactly where they should be. 
You know, if you compare Jews to, in the UK, there was recently a survey, compare Jews to Indians who also have a very strong emphasis on um, uh, education. It's exactly the same. But in any case, the person, the, the, the Jeremy Corbyn's, those around him, progressive, many on the progressive left, say, well, Jews are white and Jews are privileged. Ipso facto, they have power. And if you have power, you can't be a victim. Then there's an added element. Um, as I said to a group of people just a few days ago, you know, they, they quote the person I describe as one of the great commentators on American culture and life, Miss Piggy. Uh, <laughs> moi, you know, me. I could not possibly be an anti-Semite. Um, Corbyn always talks of his mother demonstrating Cable Street, you know, the, the anti-Mosley demonstrations, anti-fascist demonstrations. In other words, I absorbed uh, hatred of prejudice and, and my liberal values with my mother's milk, literally. And therefore, you can't possibly be a victim because you're white and you're privileged and you have power. I can't possibly be a purveyor of um, prejudice, because look at who, look at what, what I believe in. Therefore, your claims can't be true. You must have an ulterior motive. You want to bring me down politically. You want power yourself. You want to deflect attention from Israel. Whatever it might be, you question the legitimacy of the claims of anti-Semitism in a way that you would never question uh, the legitimacy of claims of racism by a person of color, of homophobia, by a, a gay person, or um, anti-Muslim hatred by a, by a Muslim. But the Jew, you question that it's not legitimate. What about this conversation about whether something is um, anti-Zionist or anti-Semitic? Yeah, I think there's, um, it's gotten very confused. Look, to say it explicitly, criticism of Israeli policies is not anti-Semitism. You know, read Haaretz, go to the Knesset, go to the Israeli parliament and you'll hear criticism of Israeli policies. Um, you can criticize a country's policies and not be opposed to that country. Um, the to my mind, it crosses a line when, uh, first of all, you see all, all the wrongs only on one side. You know, it's, if, if only Israel would do X, Y, and Z, everything would be solved. This question of fairness. Fairness, yeah. double standards, or this is the only human rights abuse that you see. And I would not want to be an, a Palestinian, an Arab living on the, on the Judea, Samaria, occupied territories, West Bank, it's the same geography, call it what you may. Um, but if you see no other problems in the world, and it's not, again, that someone has to earn their bona fides by be, being worried about all pro equal opportunity worrier about all human rights abuses, but this is the only one when there's that myopia. Or, you know, it was one thing if you didn't believe in a Jewish state in the 30s or even in the 40s, even in 46, 47. But there is a Jewish state now with six million Jewish inhabitants many non-Jewish inhabitants, but six million Jewish inhabitants. And when you say, I don't believe there should be a Jewish state, well, well, where should they go? And then people say, well, let there be one state, you know, of uh, equal non-secular, non non, uh, a secular, non-theological state. Well, name for me one Muslim-dominated country, and there are many in this world, in which a religious minority is thriving. It just doesn't happen. So 
there are many things wrong here, but when it's that myopic claim, and the, the other thing is a, an encounter, I think I told you about this earlier when we were preparing, um, that uh, I encountered someone not long ago who said to me, uh, Israel was founded in sin. And I said, well, what do you mean? By, and therefore shouldn't exist. That's never right to exist. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, in 48, the Jews kicked out the Palestinian Arabs. And I said, you know, well, that's not entirely correct. Many left because they were, you know, Arab press and imams said, leave and we'll defeat the Jews and then you'll come back and you'll inherit their, orchard, or, uh, their, or, uh, their orchards, their farms, their homes, their businesses, etc." But there were cases where, where we know that, where Jewish fighters, whether they were from the mainstream or whether they were fringe groups, pushed people out. So the person said, well, you see there, it doesn't have a right to exist. So I said, well, let's put it in a larger context, a more international context. Let's talk about, talk about other countries that have fatal flaws in their founding history. And let's start with the United States and our slavery. It's a very serious thing. And, and our treatment of the Native Americans or, or Canada and the First Nation um, or Australia and the Aborigines or New Zealand and the Maoris or England and its colonial uh, powers, etc. In other words, so when there's this myopic view... Um, and, and no one would question, though, uh, again, those are terrible wrongs. I'm not saying because they are those wrongs that makes this all right, not at all. But, but those wrongs don't, you know, what America's slavery, even though slavery ended 1865, we had 100 years of sharecropping, Jim Crow laws, terrible discrimination, and, and even later than 100 years after it ended. Um, Neo-slavery almost. Uh, but no one says that questions the right of America to exist. So it's it's that double standard that makes me wonder where is it coming from. You actually resigned from your synagogue in Atlanta this year um, after the National Council of Young Israel endorsed Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. No, was they endorsed his efforts his, to bring right? He was going to bring Kahanist parties far-right-wing parties, where, which Menachem Begin, a former prime minister, who had nothing to do with Yitzhak Shamir, both men of the far-right, who, um, but uh, Netanyahu said, we're going to bring them into a coalition. Even APAC, you know, the main pro-Israel lobbying group, criticize this. And if APAC's going to criticize the sitting government of Israel, that's pretty strong. And um, I belong to the synagogue in Israel, to modern Orthodox synagogue, and the National Council, which is some, you know, I don't know, six white men you know, uh, sitting someplace in a room or whatever. Um, but they said this, they were one of the few groups the few gr to say it was all right. And I, I immediately, and my rabbi immediately criticized it. And I, I called him and I said, I'm going to uh, resign, I'm going to have to resign. He's my neighbor. Um, and I said, I'm going to have to resign. He said, well, didn't you see my statement? I said, this was right when the book came out. I said, I just wrote a book arguing that people have to speak up. We have to become the unwelcome guests at the dinner party and call out hatred and call out prejudice and call out anti-Semitism. I can't say it's enough that you, you did this. So I resigned. And then, the, not just because of me, did the, but the synagogue, many people in the synagogue were upset of this and the, about this. They left young Israel. And on the day the vote was counted, it was very seriously done. It was an overwhelming majority. Uh, the rabbi texted me and I rejoined and then the next call was from a reporter and I said, I'm already a member. Bye. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but you, you are a, a 
a believer in free speech, you speak up for free speech too. Even the people who disagree with you. I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't believe in laws outlining Holocaust denial. First of all, they'd be illegal in the United States. Um, but I don't think they're, I, first of all, I don't think it's right. I believe in free speech. That doesn't mean you have to give them a platform. You wouldn't have to say, oh, well, we, we believe in free speech, so we're going to invite them to speak at the Antidote Festival or uh, at our campus. You don't have to do that. You have to show some discernment. Um, but I, I also don't think they're efficacious. I don't want politicians, especially in this day and age, deciding what can and cannot be said. You know, I think... Uh, the right of free speech trumps that, so. But what about the, the, the boycott? Oh, on the uptake. <laughs> it's morning, it's Sunday morning. Boycott divestment sanctions movement, the BDS movement. BDS movement, boycott divest sanction. First of all, it's not about boycotts, it's not about divestment, it's not about sanction. It's about toxifying Israel, making Israel toxic so that the student on campus who's going on a birthright trip, let's say, who might have once announced as the semester was coming to an end, guess what, I'm doing this, I'm going to go on a 10-day trip to Israel, and we'll still go, but they won't announce it. They'll be quiet about it. They'll, they'll tell maybe their fellow Jews, but not generally announce it. And this alarm bells should be ringing for us? Well, I think if you look at the founding documents of the BDS movement, if you listen to the organizers, the people at the heart of it. First of all, they are, they are calling for the destruction of the state of Israel. They're quite explicit about it. That there's no room in the Middle East for a Jewish state. That's, to my mind, anti-Semitic. Because, as I said earlier, where are these people supposed to go and, you know, um, their whole depiction of Israel as a colonial state when, uh, first of all, those... those uh, early pioneers were hardly colonists. Um, and second of all, 52% of the state of Israel is, is people of color. You know, they talk about a white colonial state. But um, more importantly, they, they don't believe there's any room for Jews in the Middle East. Um, so I think that that, that is anti-Semitic. However, having said that, I do think there are students on campus, and not just students, but certainly students on campus, who um, join BDS the same way, with the same supposition that I joined, you know, the anti-apartheid movement, because they see this as a way of change, of solving a human rights uh, problem. So I, here's where I'm careful. You know, people say, oh, he's BDS, he's an anti-Semite. I said, maybe not, you know? Um, but the movement itself, the organizers of the movement, clearly do not want Jews in that part of the world. You, you write quite a lot about um, life on campus now, because it's your life, you've been a, an academic for a long time, and this idea of, of trigger warnings and free speech and safe zones. Yeah, it d disturbs me greatly, you know, that you should have safe zones for people of a certain group, certain color, certain ethnicity, um, and trigger warnings if I'm going to say something in a class that might upset or going to read something that might be upsetting, I have to warn the students. I teach a course on the Holocaust, you know, what I'm... <laughs> if you're not upset by it, there's something wrong with you, you know? Um, I quote the president and the dean of the University of Chicago, uh, where they said, no, we don't have safe zone here, and we don't have, you know, trigger warnings. If anything, the purpose of a liberal arts education is to challenge you. 
you know, there was a student, I think at Wellesley, a, a very fine college, women's college, where they were bringing a speaker and the students were protesting because they didn't like the speaker's views. And one student was interviewed and then a group of faculty said the same thing. Well, yes, of course we believe in free speech, but we also believe in our right not to be upset and not to be threatened and not to feel like we're un made uncomfortable. What's free speech about if not to be made uncomfortable? I find uh, those kind of, um, that censorship, I find that McCarthyism of the left. I should now just tell you that if you'd like to ask Deborah a question yourself, there are two microphones up the front here, one on either side, and shortly I shall invite you to do so. But um, if you do have a question, could you make your way now to the... Um, microphones, and I should just tell you that I'm very strict. If it's not a question, you should go and sit down. <laughs> and if it's a very long question, I might have to hurry you up. Um, so, um, can I just say that, you know, you, you actually are optimistic at the end of the book, mm -hmm. and I very rarely have met an historian Anyone who looks back, who is an optimist, is, is this unusual in an historian? I don't know, but I, first of all, I'm an optimistic person. Um, you know, and I, in the end of the book, the last chapter, the last set of letters is oi versus joy, you know? <laughs> um, and I worry that, you know, and I st yeah, I've studied the Holocaust, I've been in court for 12 weeks, you know, 10 feet from a, from a Holocaust denier, anti-Semite, misogynist, racist. Um, there are a couple of other labels, but we're in mixed company, so. Um, but I, I am an optimistic person, and what I worry about, though, my Jewish identity, thanks to the home in which I was raised, the education, the camps, the youth groups, I'm in Israel, et cetera, is really rooted very much in a positive. I, I, I rejoice in who I am. Uh, just, you know, it's, it's, it's part of my DNA, you know, just like being a woman, being a, you know, a Jew, it's, it's, it's embedded, it's there, it's, it's in the weeds, whatever you wanna call it. But it's not because of the negative, it's because of the positive. Um, the, the, what Jews and Jewish culture, Jewish religion, Jewish tradition, and when I say, you know, in all its manifestations, artistically, uh, communal structure, structures of community, philanthropically, how much, how developed, how, how wonderful many of them, not all of them, many of them are, um, and what they've given the world uh, to be a Jew only because of you know, I'm, I'm going to fight the anti-Semite, is to be, it's to focus on uh, Jew as object rather than Jew as subject. What Jews do as opposed to what is done to Jews. And I'm very much a Jew who wants to be subject, not object. So, you know, that, that is very important to me. Um, I tell the story in the end uh, of the book about a friend of mine um, she's now six and a half, seven, I think. But when she was about four and a half, we, I was walking into the, uh, long time ago, but in her life, that's a big time. Um, but I was walking into synagogue with her and with her mother, I'm very close with them. And 
I read with her every night, including from here over Skype. Um, and uh, her, there was a guard at the synagogue. We've had a guard in front of our synagogue for quite a while. And, you know, in a vest and with all the paraphernalia. And the mother, her mother said, Shai, uh, thank the guard, the officer, for taking care of us and keeping us safe. Um, and Shai looked confused because she knows, even then she knew about unsafe spaces. I mean, we read Roald Dahl, so, you know, peaches that flatten kids, <laughs> chocolate factories that consume kids, etc. We didn't buy Roald Dahl. Roald Dahl was an anti-Semite. We he took was. his books out of the library. Um, <laughs> or we borrowed them, you know, whatever. He was terrible. He was. Um, but so she knew about unsafe places, but the synagogue is her happy place. She comes to the synagogue on a Shabbat morning. She peels off from her parents who go into the main sanctuary. She runs around like a maniac outside in the playground. Then they go to children's services, which at her age, you know, songs and snacks and games. Then they go into the main sanctuary and they lead the congregation in singing of Adon Olam, the final hymn. And then the rabbi gives them more snacks. Then they go into the, the kiddush, the collation. And usually if you went into a room with a four-year-old, a five-year-old, even a little older than that, where there are 200 people, you'd say, now, you don't have to stand right next to me, but stay in my eyesight. If you're going to move, tell me. But here, everybody knows each other, and the kids run around, and they load up their plates, you know, chips and cookies and olives and sweets. Nothing resembling protein crosses the transom. Um, and then they go home, and they've had a wonderful day. So here she's being told, you know, uh, thank the officer for keeping us safe. Now, uh, there's a postscript to the story. About two weeks ago, I was walking into synagogue. We lived near each other, so I was walking to synagogue. She saw me, she said, I'll, uh, can I go with you? And, I, and she came along. And as we walked in, there was an officer there, again, even more fully loaded than three, four years ago. And I, I always thank the officer and greet them and you know, ask them if they need anything. And, and the, um, Shai was with me, and I said, Shai, uh, here's the officer, and she just turned to the officer And she said, thank you for taking care of us. She understood two years later, thank you for taking care of us. Um, on the night of Pittsburgh, she asked her mommy what happened. Her mother said, some people went to synagogue at Chichul and got a boo-boo or something. But she understood San Diego, which came a couple of years later. Mm -hmm. So that's a little girl in whom she already understands the joy and the oy. And the oil should never become the raison d'etre for, her, for, mm. her, for her identity. So I'm optimistic. It's crazy. It makes no sense, but I'm optimistic. So. Thank you. So we'll have our, our first question. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. In order of priorities of threats to the Jewish people, and to the survival of Israel, where would you put in order of priorities the left and the hard right? Um, I, I don't prioritize. I ask people, I've noticed that people on the left who, who may never notice anti-Semitism coming from right next to them, see it 2020 when it comes from the right. And people on the right who never see it coming next to them see it 2020 on the left. I would say that 
wherever you are, you have what the students would call street cred, more credibility with the people next to you. It's different. Um, you know, in the United States, all the violence that we've had and the violence that we've seen has come from in synagogues and Jewish institutions come from the far right. But on the left, you see an institutionalized kind of anti-Semitism, which is also very dangerous. So it's not a competition. I would say, look at what's next to you and don't, you know, I post something on Facebook and immediately, oh, the left is worse, oh, the right is worse, you know. Um, you're bad, they'll say to me, you know, and I, uh, what have you done for the Jewish people lately? Someone said, oh boy, that guy didn't, you know, live to see the next. <laughs> not for me, I just sat back and my friends took care of him. Um, <laughs> But, so I don't see it one word, I see it different. With the same tropes and the same memes. It's not two different kinds of anti-Semitism. It's the same, uh, you know, uh, descriptions, the same claims, but both in a different kind of way. Yes, on this side. Um, I just want to ask you a question. You, when you mentioned um, the comment that I think we all hear, and I know I've heard from Palestinian Muslims and Israeli Muslims in Israel as well as here, and um, why can't there just be one secular state in Israel? You jumped straight to saying, where have minority groups flourished in Muslim states? I just want to know what your reason is for jumping straight from the question well, secular I, state to Muslim state. Uh, first of all, um, you know, the, the argument against, uh, for a secular state, a secular state, some of these people will say, well, it's an anachronism, etc. You have 22 Muslim states, those aren't secular states. I don't see anything wrong with a Jewish state. I don't think, see anything wrong with a Jewish national identity. Um, I do see problems in the area and problems that have to be worked out. Um, but I'm not willing to, you know, say Jews should be the only people who, who, who aren't eligible to have a state. Yes. Uh, no, we've had a question, and yes. now we're going to another question. Okay. Yes. She's strict, wow. <laughs> what are you doing tomorrow? Come with me. <laughs> uh, lovely to hear you speak in person, Professor Lipshutt. I'm uh, doing my PhD on anti-Semitism on the internet, and I wanted to hear your perspective on, considering your long career, do you think anti-Semitism on the internet is a a qualitatively new evolution of anti-Semitism, and does that mean we have to re-examine and change our strategies, and what strategies yes. might... First of all, you should see me afterwards, because I can make a contact with you with some people who are doing research in that area. Yes, I think what, what the internet... And look, I love social media. It's so easy to beat up on social media, etc. Um, I use it in my research. I use it to keep people posted. Here I am down under. I'm still, you know, functioning, etc. Um, but... You, what, what has happened is it has obviated, it has nullified the concept of lone wolf. There is no such thing as a lone wolf anymore. As I'm sure you well know if you're working in this area. Uh, the shooter in Pittsburgh, the shooter in San Diego, uh, the shooter in, um, in Charleston, Dylan Roof, who went into Mother Emanuel Church uh, prior to the Pittsburgh uh, uh, incident, they, they, and, and then sat and studied with an African-American church, wonderful church, and, and then shot, shot people there, killed people there. Um, they all were quoting from the same person, people. They were all quoting the same website. So in other words, where it used to be, people had to be in touch with one another. Otherwise we said, oh, that's a lone wolf. And there's no, the concept of lone wolf is, is gone. 
A. B, um, I th the, the spreading of anti-Semitism is so much more fierce and quick and of hatred, not just anti-Semitism, racism, um, all kinds of uh, isms, etc. Um, you know, it used to be that if I said something terrible to 10 people, they said it to 10 people, it would, it would grow geometrically. But on the internet, you know the reach. So it's no more lone wolves. Um, B, the reach is so much more instantaneous and broader. And C, um, the person who has no credibility, no standing, doesn't really know, very, just, is just a hater, it gets a certain status because they can hide behind the anonymity of the internet. So I think what you're, what you're working on is really the heart of, of much of what we're seeing in terms of, or trying to address the problem. So good luck. <laughs> I think there's nobody on this mic, is that right? So we'll go to you. Thanks for the talk. In reference to the article in the Herald this morning, aside from the emotions it engenders, is there a difference between bigotry and prejudice? I think one is a subset of the other. Prejudice prejudge, as I said earlier, don't confuse me with the facts, um, leads to a bigotry. I don't, I don't know that I would differentiate between, between the two. Um, I think both are irrational, because they're judging a person not for who they are, but what they are. You know, I have a colleague who says, you meet the stereotype right in front of your nose while the person is still two blocks away. You know, you, you don't know anything about the person. Um, so I don't know, I don't see, I don't see a difference um, in, in between the two. Yes. One of the biggest risks we seem to have about being a Jew and kind of nearly of Judaism is ourselves in the context of intermarriage, apathy, some Jews are anti-Semitic in themselves. What can we do to actually protect ourselves from ourselves? What do you think we should be doing to prevent intermarriage? Oh God, you know. Um... That's a hard question, you know? Um, first of all, you know, um, I don't, I, I, there are Jews who are anti-Semitic. I don't like the term self-hating Jews because I think a lot of those Jews are not self-hating at all. They're very proud of the stance they're taking. Um, I think it's just something we've always had and will, will always will be there. Um, I don't know if there's much we can do. I don't think condemning and right away labeling, as, as, as often happens with you know, um, people who are part, Jews who join BDS, or in, in, in the States we have a, a left-wing, uh, taking a pretty left-wing stance in terms of Israel, J Street. Now I disagree with a lot of the policies of J Street, but you'll get to, oh, J Street, anti-Semitic. I think we have to also be careful in that sense. In terms of intermarriage, there's been an ironic thing that's happened. Of course, yes, intermarriage, you lose many people to the Jewish community, but you're also gaining what we're seeing recently, and I can't give you the exact statistics on it, um, but, and so it is impressionistic, but I get out enough and I've got, you know, there are a lot of impressions, um, that I've had people come up to me and say, I'm not Jewish, but I'm deeply bothered by anti-Semitism. It makes me nuts. I, and because I have Jewish grandchildren, you know, so on some, you know, there's maybe that's what they say in Hebrew, half a consolation, but that's, yeah. Thank you. And behind you? Uh, this, is, this is a question about choosing your battles. Um, 
I've encountered anti-Semitic um, discussions where I've felt sometimes I could make a difference and other times whatever I said would just be completely rejected. And I'm just wondering about you, would you share a platform with a Holocaust denier or when do you decide that it's the right time to, to stand up and say things and when do you just walk away because you think anything I say will not make any difference? It's a great question. I don't share platforms with Holocaust deniers. I never have. I, um, after my book came out uh, and, and when the movie came out, I was asked a number of times, you know, be on a show with David Irvin. I said, no, thank you. You know, I've, I've been there, done that. Because um, uh, you see, people, people say they're facts and their opinions. But when you're talking about Holocaust deniers, I make this, I, I have a TED talk and I, I make this point very strongly in the TED talk. They're facts, their opinions, and their lies. Trying to debate a Holocaust denier is like trying to nail a blob of jelly to the wall. It's, it's impossible because they're liars and there's no, and, and to sit and share a platform is to elevate them. So I wouldn't share a platform with an anti-Semite. Let's debate whether Jews are bad or good or whatever. That I wouldn't do. Um, and, uh, but you've got to, at the same time, there are times you've got to pick your battles. Uh, I didn't write my book, either my book uh, about Holocaust denial, the one that precipitated the lawsuit, or my book about the, the trial, or this book, to convince deniers. Deniers are anti-Semites. Holocaust denial is a form of anti-Semitism. Think about it. If you were to ask a denier, why would the Jews make up this myth? They will tell you, oh, what did Jews get out of the Holocaust? They got a state and they got money, reparations, fancy word. Now, the state thing is much more open to debate. There would have been something there without, you know, the Holocaust. But that's the perception. But in that explanation, the deniers are using traditional anti-Semitic tropes. Jews will do this for money. Jews will, they wanted a state. It didn't matter to them what they caused, the harm they caused to others. They forced Germany to admit to doing this evil, etc. Um, there's, no, there's no debating those people. It's the people they might convince, the people who are confused. It's the people who are confused. What is this anti-Semitism? Well, is there some legitimate reason um, What's going on here? What are the charges? Those, that's where I would pick my, to stand my, stand, stand my ground, not with the, with the denier or the hater. Hi, Deborah. Thank you very much for your presentation. You're welcome. Um, your book seems very timely. Uh, is anti-Semitism worse today? And if so, why is it worse today? And are there comparisons perhaps to the 1930s? Okay, that little uh, uh, question. This will be the last question. Yes. Um, is it worse today? Um, I don't know if there are more anti-Semites today. I happen to think there probably are. But what we do have today that we haven't had for many, many years is an emboldening of anti-Semites. That's what I was talking in my comparison of Trump and, and Corbyn as sort of stand-ins. I think both men and people around them as well have made anti-Semites, like the people we saw marching there, feel emboldened or on the left as well, um, feel it's okay to say these things. So I think that that's, that's really what I see um, 
as, as, as the issue. It's, it's not different, but there, and it's not just anti-Semitism, maybe we're, we're, we're low on time, but um, I think what we have to do, maybe I'll use that question as sort of a for final statement, mm. what we have to do, a couple of things we have to do. First of all, we have to recognize you can't fight one-ism to the exception of other isms. You can't say, yes, you're gonna be more concerned, certainly if it's your ox who's being gored, you know, um, uh, that about one thing. But you can't say, oh, I'm only concerned about anti-Semitism and not be concerned about racism. Things start with the Jews, they don't end with the Jews. So they start with racism, those people will come to anti-Semitism as well. We have to be the unwelcome guest at the dinner party. We have to speak out. We have to speak out in a way that maybe not to convince the hater as the previous question or previous questioner, but the people at the table, not just the young people, but especially the young people, that this is kind of talk and language we won't abide. No genocide began with action. Every genocide, whether you're talking about Rwanda, you're talking about the former Yugoslavia, you're talking about Armenians, uh, every genocide or the Holocaust, of course, began with words. How is it similar or the same, the attacks on the democratic institutions of our time? Um, and, and I think ultimately, and again, we started by asking who I wrote the book for. The reason I wrote it for as broad an audience as I could possibly aim at is because Anti, we should all be upset by anti-Semitism. Certainly if you're Jewish, you know, you're going to be more upset because it's, it's affecting you personally. Or if you have Jewish uh, neighbors, friends, grandchildren, relatives, you're going to be upset. But that's not the main reason. And also, you know, you could be upset because I hate all forms of prejudice. But there's a bigger reason. No democratic society can abide having anti-Semitism in its midst and consider itself a healthy democratic society. What we see today, anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory. I began on this point, and no healthy democratic society can tolerate conspiracy theory in its midst because it, it attacks the very institutions in which, which keep us functioning. So um, it's something that should be concerned to everyone um, and I hope, you know, that's one of the reasons why I came here, the one of the reasons why I'm um, putting so much effort into this, because um, I worry. I worry not just for the, the, the well-being of Jews. I mean, I certainly worry about that. But I worry more about well-being of the society, the democratic society which, uh, in which my family, family has flourished so magnificently and which I so treasure because it's in those societies where also Jews have flourished and so many others have flourished. Um, so the fight should be not just for the Jews, but for that society which we treasure. Thank you very much. I, okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> thank you very much. Can I just say, Thank you. Oh, look.
Thank you. Deborah, Deborah will be signing her book um, out the front, so I'm sure if you had a little question, a short question, she would Happy to answer. answer it when Thank she you all very signs much. your book. And uh, her courage and her, her wisdom has been fantastic. Thank you.